This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 323. Today, CJ and I sat down with the CEO of Circle CI, Rob Zuber, to talk about continuous integration and continuous deployment space in the industry, as well as the latest support they've added for their product and service for Windows. Recorded live October the 3rd, 2019. Struggling to reproduce problems in your code base? Successful software starts with Raygun. Raygun provides application performance monitoring, unlike anything that you've experienced before, offering greater clarity around how your software is performing for your customers than any other APM provider. Easily detect and diagnose issues impacting end users and monitor every part of your stack in one place. It's time to get back to building great software instead of fighting it. Start your journey to better software quality and try Raygun for free at raygun.com today. Hello, everybody. This is AC. CJ and I sat down today, had a great interview with Rob Zuber from Circle CI. We've talked about continuous integration, continuous deployment in the past here on the show. But today we wanted to sit down and to talk to Circle CI and their CEO. Circle CI is a product that I've used in the past. I'm a big fan of what they've done and their stance and working with Linux in the past. I've used them for a lot of my projects. I did have, uh, have to go elsewhere to go find support for Windows when I was doing that, uh, when I needed Windows in my builds and tests, to be able to test Windows builds in my projects. But now they, as of last month, in August of 2019, they've recently added support for Windows. And so we reached out to CircleCI when they, we saw that they were adding support for Windows and being able to have Windows VMs as part of your build process and uh, wanted to see if they wanted to come on the show. And so sure enough, they did. We sat down at the interview you'll hear here in just a minute. CJ and I talked to Rob mostly about the CI and CD space, kind of what Rob is seeing from their side and what the interest was in, in being able to add support for Windows to their product. So why don't we go ahead, and uh, it's a fairly good-sized interview, so why don't we just go ahead and play the interview and just dive right into it. The 99.9% .9 SLA means you're protected from power outages, bad patches, natural disasters, maybe even a dinosaur attack. Does it protect you from yourself though? Avpoint Backup for SharePoint Online provides full fidelity backup and recovery from individual items to entire team sites. Avpoint can run backups up to four times a day to ensure your data is secure. Recover anytime you want without having to pick up the phone and schedule restore windows. Learn why Avpoint is the Microsoft Cloud expert at www.avpoint.com. If you could score an extra hour or two back in your day, would you take it? Because our friends over at Nintex want to give you a gift, the gift of time. Seriously, if you haven't checked out what Nintex has to offer lately, you should. The platform built on Azure has evolved a lot. In just the past few months, the Nintex team has added new process mapping capabilities, and most recently, a new e-sign capability called Nintex Sign, powered by Adobe Sign. Nintex also continues to revolutionize products you know and trust, including Nintex Workflow and Forms. With the power of Nintex, it is faster and easier for you to configure, not code, giving you valuable time back every day to spend it however you want. Test drive the Nintex Process Cloud at Nintex.com. All right, today, CJ and I are joined by Rob Zuber. Uh, Rob is a 20-year veteran of a software startups, a four-time founder, three-time CEO, a CTO. And since he joined Circle CI, Rob has seen the company through Series B, Series C, and delivered on product innovation at scale. And he leads a team of over 100 engineers who are distributed around the globe. Prior to Circle CI, he was the CTO and co-founder of Distiller, which is a continuous integration and deployment platform for mobile apps that was acquired by Circle 
2014. So Rob holds a bachelor's degree in applied science from the Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and lives in Oakland, California with his wife and two children. So Rob, welcome to the Microsoft Cloud Show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. This is a bit of a treat for me. I was, um, I've been a customer or a user of Circle CI for quite a few years here. I've been a big fan. You guys have some really cool features, or at least there's one feature that I see that nobody else seems to do that you guys have just, it surprises me because it's awesome in terms of the debugging where um, when you have a build that's gone bad, I can say, go rerun it again so I can connect into the container and actually see kind of the, the, um, the scene of the murder. That happened, but uh, it's a it's a killer. It's not exactly how we refer to it, but I like it. I like it. Whatever works for you. Hey, you haven't seen my builds, so <laughs> fair enough. But um, hey, I want to give you a chance to just kind of give you a chance to explain kind of what is Circle CI for our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Yeah, for sure. So continuous integration. I mean, I, I could start there a little bit. I'm hopeful, deeply hopeful, that many people at least have a sense of continuous integration. But we all came from a world where we didn't, and so it's been very cool as a as a software developer in that 20 years that you were just describing to see how we've all evolved and in, in sort of how we build and think about software, but. But anyway, continuous integration, the process of effectively merging together your changes with the changes of others in your team and seeing that you, you, know, you haven't created conflicting changes, you haven't broken things as in different parts of your work. I don't know if you've worked on one of these projects, but I've definitely seen them where you have six months of work and then six months of merging together all the changes, trying to figure out how to make everything happen again. I mean, ideally for many of us, those days are behind us. And so what we do at CircleCI is effectively take a lot of the the automation behind that, a lot of the the capability, whether it's just as you described, doing access-controlled ability to get into a container and debug what went wrong when a build does actually fail, really doing everything to surface as much information about broken builds as possible to help developers debug as part of their their day-to-day workflow. Take all of those pieces of work that people tend to, they spend a lot of their time and energy trying to get that stuff set up and functioning properly and and sort of configuring servers and all this kind of stuff. Take that away so that teams can focus on the core of their business, right? So allowing software engineers to build and deliver value on a day-to-day basis, as opposed to, for lack of a better word, futzing with, you know, with build servers and configurations and stuff like that. So part of that is that our primary offering is a cloud offering. Um, So we do things like scale out all the capacity that you need on your behalf. I mean, it's, it's shared tenancy, so we're doing that across hundreds of thousands of, of users, but so that you don't have to worry about capacity limits or the number of machines that you have online at any given time, that sort of thing. Manage who has access to different instances. I mean, I prior to CircleCI, I was a Jenkins user, and we just all had access to these boxes, and we all logged in and saw everybody else's work and secrets and all these kinds of things. And that's probably fine when you're a three-person startup, but as you grow and scale, there's concerns <laughs> with that. And so really taking a lot of the work that ends up being the work of managing CI and CD off of the plates of teams so that they can focus their energy on you know, getting their value in front of their customers. I see, yeah. See, CJ, you mentioned a second ago uh, about how experience on you spending all this time building a product and then you have to spend all this time kind of merging things together. I know, CJ, you've got it. A lot of experience, I guess, living that world from your time at Microsoft and working on an enterprise product. Yeah, I was, I was kind of chuckling in the background there for a second, Rob, because you said, you know, six months to start merging stuff. And I was like, oh, only six months. Like Windows <laughs> would code for 
you know, 28 weeks and then spend the next three years merging. (laughs) 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 I'm only partially joking. (laughs) I have this conversation all the time and I I know that I've tipped over the horizon of of being the, you know, old man yelling at clouds sort of thing. But (laughs) when I see young developers who haven't suffered through certain sort of experiences. And, and, and it's cool because you're, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of giants on all this. And like some of the things that I've had to do in my life, no, like some people will never have to do. And that's, that's fantastic. But sometimes you lose a bit of the context as well. And it doesn't make sense. Like why we do things in this way or whatever doesn't make sense. And so I think it's, it is always fun at least to explore these concepts of, you know, 28 weeks of coding and three years of merging or whatever. Like, I think it would actually be really hard for a lot of, of younger developers to even understand what that looked like, let alone believe that it happened. I mean, I talk about, I worked in one of my first organizations, we sold into telco a lot. And so we would have 12 month release cycles followed by 12 month sales cycles, right? And so it was 24 months between writing a line of code at some point and actually having it in production and now I've worked in teams where people ship on the first day. Like you don't go home until you've put something into a production environment, which is, I think it's very cool. It sets a, a tone of how we think about delivering value. But at the same time, if that's your first software programming experience, you know, less than 24 hours versus 24 months is a, is a really big change in how we think about, you know, getting value to customers. It's a lot of fun. I, mean, I agree with you. It's a lot of fun watching this one topic, I think, in the industry is a lot of fun watching how people are embracing it because you've got multiple classes, but I'll just break it down into two where you said you have the one class of, I guess it's people like the three of us. We, I've been there. I've seen the whole, you know, you build for a while and then it's now we have to do this monolithic deployment and or monolithic, like merge everything together and then monolithic deployment. And when you start to get into the whole like CI and CD process of, you know, you're continuously, you're literally continuously integrating the stuff that you're doing in with what everybody else is doing. And you're continuously deploying to where the stuff that you're building this morning could be in production this afternoon, or at least is within a couple of days. It's a refreshing experience to know that, I guess for me personally, I feel I have less of a concern on rolling things into deployment where before I was always paranoid about rolling things into deployment, knowing that, well, if I roll this out and stuff breaks, it's going to be this, my next two days are going to be absolute hell where now if you do a deployment, it's like, well, if it breaks, I'll just, you know, fail forward. I'll just go find what the problem is. I'll fix it really quick and I'll just do another update. But it can't be something that was that epic because I haven't done that much since the last time we rolled things out. So I don't have as much of a fear of pushing things into production. Then you've got that other class of people that, like you said, they've never experienced that. They've kind of come of age or they've come into, into the development world where this is the norm of how they do development. You're constantly shipping. And I've got a guy that I, I work with frequently when we talk about this, this concept and how we're building things. And he kind of looks at me always like I've got my head screwed on wrong because he's got this kind of ivory tower kind of view of like, yeah, but you have to have this stuff automated. You have to have tests in there. How can you push this stuff out where there's, any, where there's no tests in there? I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm just trying to get something done right now. I'm just trying to show you a proof of concept. No, there's no tests in it. He's like, yeah, but you just can't do that. I'm like, man, this is just two completely different worlds of like, it's like talking to somebody who's been vegan all of their life and someone who is just a complete carnivore. Like it's two completely different worlds. And it's like, neither one of you are wrong. Well, I mean, in each other's eyes you are, but neither one of you are really wrong. It's just really funny to watch this experience between the two sides. I totally, I've seen it. I think there is, there's dogmatism about many things. And I think when you've been through enough just 
bizarre scenarios, you know, like your level of pragmatism increases a little bit, like, cause there's always, there's always a reason for something, right. For taking some particular approach, you know, to your point, like, I'm just trying to show you a little sample of, of what something could look like. It's not going anywhere. I don't know if TDD is the right, right approach for me right now. I'm not sure that I need to pair on this with someone like it's literally hello world, you know? So, so there's, there's perspective, I guess. And again, I, I'm just going to go back to my yelling at clouds things. Like, I think that my perspective has softened a lot over, you know, over all this time that I've spent in the industry because I used to be, you know, this is the absolute one way to do things. I mean, of course, I believe that the things we've achieved, the way that the industry has grown have been really valuable, but I'm not going to yell at people for not doing things that way. I'll, I'll be interested to have a conversation with them about it and how they, you know, how they made their choices. I think... One of the things that I always talk about with respect to evolution of software process in general, and I don't know if it'll resonate, but it, I find it interesting is in each of these stages, you know, as we adopted Agile, as we adopted automated testing, continuous integration, in almost every one of these cases, we realized at some point that we couldn't eliminate risk and therefore we had to embrace it in a way. And then the next step was to make it as small as possible. Right. So like waterfall process was basically it's going to be really expensive to build this software. So let's be absolutely right about what we're going to build. Right. Let's make sure we've analyzed every single requirement and we've worked through, you know, I don't know if you've written PRDs and MRDs and TRDs and whatever. I mean, I I once saw one with a 35 page, just 35 pages of signatures. And I was like, okay, this has got to be the end of this this line. Like there's got to be a better way. But then you say, okay, well, that's, we're, we're still wrong, right? We're wrong and it's crazy expensive how wrong we are and we're going to be wrong. So how, how small can we be wrong, if that makes any sense? Like what's, what's the smallest amount of something that we can be wrong about? Let's build the tiniest little thing and get some customer feedback, right? And going like fast forward all the way to continuous deployment and what you were just describing, like a bad deploy when it's a deploy of 12 months of software is a horrible experience, right? It's like, does anyone even know who wrote those lines of code? Does anyone know how this thing was supposed to work that's broken right now? Like literally nobody remembers, right? But if I wrote it an hour ago and it breaks in production, I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, that's, when I watch someone's failed deploy, that is the reaction you see on their face, right? It's like, oh Ah, of course. Of course that didn't work. Yeah. Is it ever going to work? Right. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) Okay. I can't believe I didn't cover that with a test, whatever. Roll it back. Or as you said, fast, like when my deploy takes three minutes, like just push out another one, right? Oh, okay. Now I understand. Push the fix, move on with my life. And so there's, there's risk, right? Something is still going to break. It's not that we've eliminated it. It's just that we've accepted it. And then we've spent our time making it, you know, as small as possible. And I think that going back to the, kind of the history and the context, if you've never experienced that large risk, it's not as obvious how important this, you're constraining the risk and making it really small is. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking, I've been reading a lot about the diff, you know, how the world has changed from a complicated world to a complex world and the difference between those two things and what they mean. And, and I liked your point about previously, we used, to, we used to have a complicated task, right? We used to have really complicated software, but we could work it out. We could figure out every sort of nuance to it. Given enough time and enough people, we thought we could figure out all of the tests, all of the cases in that software. And everybody used to be able to sign off and go, we understand how that software is going to work. But in a complex world, we're basically resigning ourselves to the fact that we're never able, it's so complex, we're never going to be able to figure it all out. And so 
I think your point there was like, just embrace the fact that you're never going to figure it all out and reduce risk by eating off little, like nibbling off little pieces at a time and nailing those. And then altogether, they should all you should have your bases covered. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable assessment of that of that transition. I mean, I love the word complexity, not because I want complexity, but I love to think about that that problem and and by association simplicity. I uh, I'm trying to remember the name of this book that I, I read last year. I think it's called The Philosophy of Software Design or something. And, and the author basically expresses that you know your goal as a software engineer is to reduce complexity. Like everything you do all day long is basically just about reducing complexity and then spends a number of, of chapters explaining the different scenarios in which complexity is introduced and how to handle it. And I think there are lots of things that we like to do as software engineers that are now increasing complexity and we're not, it's a little accidental or we're not acknowledging it. But we see that, I certainly see that as I watch how people build software. I mean, it's it's cool being at the center of hundreds of thousands of software projects and how they get built every day. I see the introduction of complexity. I was actually listening to one of your episodes, an interview with the, the person who runs Have I Been Pwned. And it was a very cool episode, by the way, and a little scary. Every time I have a deep talk <laughs> about security, I lose some sleep. But he was talking about transitioning to functions and sort of like I have some monolith, a monolith and then I'm going to microservices and I'm going to functions and, and sort of serverless and all these things. And we think about all those things in the simplicity, like I've made a smaller and smaller piece of software, which is therefore simpler. And sometimes we forget to talk about the fact that now I have 600 independent pieces of software that all need to talk to each other. So I've just moved my complexity, right? And that's actually changed the way that people think about about CI and CD and, and where they find certain errors, where they expect to find certain errors, where, you know, the ability to build out a, you know, an end-to-end test environment with 600 services in it is, it's hard, I would say. And so I think that there is a real evolution in where the complexity lies in our software. And there are lots of things that we can do to reduce complexity that maybe as individuals, we don't pay attention to because we, we have to recognize that now we've created a system, right? A more complex system. It's funny you say that because it's, you, it, I remember the, there was an article, I remember when the industry started going crazy over containers and, and over microservices and everyone's like, you should, everything should be built this way and everybody's got a hammer. We should all be finding these nails and we should all be doing this. And then one guy, I remember reading this one blog post where this guy talked about how their experience of when they switched over and he's like, we just changed the way we did stuff. It wasn't, this isn't all that different. We still have the same problems before when something broke, we knew what to look for and it was a big problem to fix. But now the big problem was not the big thing to fix. It was trying to figure out where is the problem. And it was like, we look at it and we said, now we have this murder mystery that we have to go discover where before it was a car accident that we had to go figure out. And it was like, it was a big accident, but now we got all of these other pieces and everybody's gone. It's like, what the hell just happened? So you mentioned something a second ago about you know being kind of at the center based on your nature and based on what your business does. I'm curious what kind of insights you guys have or what kind of observations you have of people that are getting into this whole you know, continuous integration world, continuous deployment world. Are, they, are these people that are, are brand, do you see the majority of people that are coming to not just your service, but just to the, this headspace, are they brand new to it? Are they taking stuff that they've done on-prem and they want to be able to offload it and put it more in the cloud and become more nimble? Do they want to have more flexibility? Are they doing it for, I know I'm loading with a bunch of questions here, just, I mean, however you want to answer this, but it's a, 
Are they doing it for, I want to see all these different builds from, or these, um, the work from multiple people on my team all kind of coming together and seeing green builds, or we're trying to get better test coverage, or we're trying to make our deployments easier, more scriptable, and not as manual and stuff. What do you see? Is there a trend on what people are doing, or is it a pretty good even mix across the board? Or Yeah, I would say it's more like a mix. Like if, you, if you're familiar with crossing the chasm, I don't know that I could even identify the you know, the tiers or whatever, kind of early adopters into kind of the, the late majority, whatever, and then the laggards. But we have a bit of everybody in the sense. So, you know, CircleCI was started in 2011, effectively launched beginning of 2012. And I would say the, the immediate hit at that point was people building Rails monoliths because mm-hmm. Rails was new the like mentality around TDD, around just automated testing in general. I mean, you scaffold a Rails project and boom, you have a set of tests and like it, they fail, right? You, out of the gate, it's, you know, this, you should be testing, you should be testing, you should be testing, which is great. And you had these two or three person shops building projects. And the first thing they said was, I don't want to deploy a CI server if I can just, you know, click on this button with my GitHub account and now I have CI. Like We just did it for you, right? And so that was people who really understood it, knew they needed it, knew or they wanted it, and just wanted a way to not have to do it themselves, right? And so fast forward, whatever we are now, almost eight years, and things are, things are a little different, right? Like we've changed the whole way that we build software about 18 times since then, which is, which is cool. And you still have these kind of new projects where people are just, I know that I need this thing or I want this thing. I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm going to just use CircleCI or or something else because this is not the core of my business, right? Then we have folks who are, you know, maybe have been doing this in-house or as you mentioned, on-prem on some, some other system where they have people managing it. And it's a migration, just wait a second, we could get all these people back and have them work on our product instead of, you know, trying to hold servers together because this is not the core of what we do. And then we're, we're seeing people sort of just adopting CI and CD for the first time, you know, just we kind of, I don't know, we have a, a huge team of QA testers and we manually deploy software onto these, you know, onto these instances. And then people sit around and click buttons for four months before we can ship software. I mean, that's still out there, right? And so, I mean, I don't know, maybe you probably have some examples that are bigger than four months, but that same model still exists. So seeing, we're seeing everywhere in the spectrum, I guess I would say, from people just trying to offload the stuff that's not core to them to people who are, you know, just starting to explore more automation around how they deliver software. And so I would say for us, it's been really exciting over the last, again, eight, I've been with the company five years, a little over five years to see the, the growth in this space, I mean, to be in the middle of such a huge change in terms of how people think about delivering software. And then obviously it's great for us that they, you know, one of the steps to getting there is to, is to pick a tool like us. Yeah. One of the things you just talked, we were talking about like, you know, the, the transition or like where people are coming from in their, I guess the personal life cycle of going through this whole process. You know, in the past, you guys have been primarily a Linux, a Linux shop. I know there's a bit of, there also is a Mac OS story as well, but one of the reasons also we wanted to talk to you today was that I know you guys recently had, uh, I think it was back in August, you rolled out support for Windows, which was brand new here. Is that something you, something you, had, you talked a little bit about? Like, you know, what is this story that you have? Where is the demand for this coming? Yeah, just yeah. hear a little bit more about this. 
Yeah. So, I mean, from a personal perspective, it's interesting to me. I actually, in the late nineties, did all of my work in the windows world. I was, I was doing um, Java development and back in the late nineties, uh, you may recall Microsoft actually liked Java and uh, I, I used visual J plus plus. That was my IDE. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it was in my mind still the best Java IDE that's ever existed, <laughs> but it was killed. And so I sort of made this shift into the Linux world when all of that went south and we were building out larger and larger data centers and, and moved things from SQL Server to Oracle back then. It's done a lot of interesting things. But anyway, I actually think, you know, we were MSDN, you know, that sort of stuff back in the day. And, and I've always thought Microsoft was really, really good at, at tooling for developers, right? I really enjoyed working with our stuff. And clearly Microsoft has evolved some amazing things in the, um, you know, in the language space and that framework and actually started to move away from being just about Microsoft, the operating system. I mean, I'm telling the wrong people about the history of Microsoft, but for us, you know, we started out with Linux. Everything we did was containerized. We were very in that space. Again, Ruby on Rails, everybody was deploying to Heroku, you know, at the time and, and things like that. And that was enough of a business for us to not spend a lot of time, you know, looking elsewhere. As I mentioned, or maybe you mentioned in the intro, I joined CircleCI through the acquisition of, of a company called Distiller, which was an, a Mac OS or iOS offering. So we added that, but had sort of Again, just had enough opportunity ahead of us that we were very focused on getting that system right. But then ultimately realized that, A, there's a huge community of developers out there in the Windows ecosystem. They're building great things. They're supporting very large organizations or you know, doing all the same kinds of things that a lot of our customers are doing. I would say also our customer base has grown larger, right? So the overall customer base has grown larger, but our sort of tiering of customers, if you will, or, or the segments that we've started to work with, we've moved up segment a little bit. So we start to see people with broader mixes of technologies inside their organization looking to us to be their one provider. I mean, that was part of bringing in Distiller for CircleCI was to, you know, people were building mobile apps and backends, right? How do I get all this stuff from one provider and have that capability? So that was a driver for us, recognizing that there's a, a really big, exciting market within the Windows developer ecosystem, having customers that were interested in it. And then, honestly, realizing with many things that we've done over the years in terms of how we've evolved the architecture of the system, that supporting Windows was really plugging Windows build capacity into an experience that was a great experience regardless of what, what platform and tools you were using. I would say back in 2012, 2013, our architecture was very Linux-centric because that's how you start, right? You build the simplest thing possible to get people using the system and see if it's what they want or you know, if there's value there. But over the years, as again, adding Mac and extending out how we are sort of breaking apart the pieces of our, of our infrastructure and architecture to grow, we were at a point where we could bring the same experience that we knew people loved on top of, you know, Linux and Mac to a Windows world without basically building a new product, right? It was mm -hmm. bigger. I mean, we had to do some work absolutely to kind of embed ourselves a little more in the, in the Microsoft ecosystem, learn that, you know, all the tools that people were using, basically brought in some expertise around that, some experience to understand, you know, what does it mean to run a build in a, a Windows environment and how can we make the combination of the great experience that we have for our customers, you know, the kind of debugging capabilities that you were describing earlier in terms of just 
how do we bring that exact same experience, but also bring in the key capabilities that people are looking for from a Windows development perspective. And so we reached the point where we felt like we had that combination. We had a great opportunity. And, and honestly, in the market, there's not a ton of great options. I mean, obviously, we had, I said earlier that I, I've softened my opinion on things. But when it comes to Circle CI, pretty happy with what we do. I think we do things in a great way. And you know, looked around and thought, this is a great opportunity to, to provide something for a, another part of the ecosystem. So was, yeah, it was the technical hurdle that meant that you were able to do this now, I'm just out of interest, was, was the work that the Windows team have done around Windows Server and containers, the big sort of technical hurdle that Microsoft had to cross to allow you to do what you've done on the Linux world? Just out um, of interest, a little bit of sort of how the sausage gets made kind of stuff, yeah, I know, but yeah. is, did that play into this? Not exactly because, so we actually have the part, the architectural part on our side that really helped is we used to be very just container centric. Our defaults are still container oriented, right? It it gives us a way to create very customized environments for folks, have them say, you know, exactly what they want inside of their system. And I think there's an evolution or inside of their build environment, I guess is a better way to describe it. There's an evolution around around Windows that may bring in some of that from a containerization perspective. But so we have this model of executors, basically like different environments in which your tasks, because you have a workflow that breaks down into jobs and tasks. I won't go into too much of that, but the environment in, like you can assign different resource classes, even different like operating systems or images for different parts of your workflow. And some of those can be VMs as opposed to containers. So from a Windows perspective, and for some of the other capabilities that we offer, we spin up a full VM, run everything within that environment, and then basically shut it down. And so it was really the separation within our system that allowed us to plug in all these different types. We refer to them as compute. I don't know, it's like different types mm-hmm. of compute, different basically executors or environments that allowed us to bring this into the system in a way that that actually was not a huge belittle the work that was done by the team to make this happen. But but it wasn't a massive architectural change, right? There were definitely places where we assume some Linux commands or how we set up the system, etc. But ultimately, the interface to what's happening inside of the build is in the hands of the customer, right? So you can, you can do whatever you want. We create the environment for you. We manage all the scaling. We give you the debugging tools. But how you execute things inside of there you can manipulate. So if you're, you know, you're using PowerShell versus Bash, that's not a huge architectural dependency within our system. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's interesting hearing you describe how you how you guys are leveraging it. I mean, I, I see how you guys have done stuff. I see how other other companies similar to what you guys do have also done your implementation where everything is very container focused. And then watching even over the years where Microsoft has been more embracing of the container space they still have a very VM-focused or VM-like first stance, almost from a company perspective. I mean, I see that from, from the Windows side. I see that even from their CI and CD offering as well, they default to the VM, not just for the Windows side, they do it also for the Linux side as well. Whereas a lot, it seems like everybody else goes with the container side. That's not saying that one is better than the other one. I'm just saying, just, I find it interesting to see how the two, I don't know, the two halves kind of go and come at it from a different approach here. Yeah, I th- there's value to both. Honestly, that's why we ended up with, with both there. Reason, and, um, you know, Mac is another place where we, we don't have containerization in the way that you have in, um, 
Linux. I mean, I get this question all the time. So what about Docker for Mac? I'm like it's running Linux containers on your Mac. Like that's not what people don't, <laughs> people don't want Mac builds run in a Linux container. We could just give them Linux if that's what they wanted. Right. So <laughs> there are cases where it's still the best option. Maybe the underlying tech isn't, you know, isn't up to the place where we can, of what we can do with Docker. The thing that's really interesting about us and Docker. So first of all, we were using LXC containers before Docker was even a thing. And then we had to change because Docker and LXC started to become incompatible with each other in terms of how they work. But we use Docker and container-based builds in a bunch of ways because that's how our customers think in a lot of cases. They think they have deployment environments or development images that they can use that are already designed to sort of run their tests properly or whatever. And giving them the opportunity to take advantage of that is huge. But then it creates this complexity around I'm inside a Docker container and I'm trying to build a Docker container and I'm trying to do that in a multi-tenant environment. So there's some, like, speaking of sausage being made, like underneath the covers, they're trying to make all of that stuff work effectively in a multi-tenant environment can be challenging and sometimes leads to people falling back to just say, you know what, I'll give you a full computer and you can just do whatever you want because this is not worth solving. We thought it was worth solving because of the advantages we got, but I could see just defaulting to VMs and saying, you know, just do whatever you want. Gotcha. So I have a question. I have a question that a lot of our listeners will be coming from like the Azure land, Azure world, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe familiar with the TFS and, and Visual Studio Online and, and now Azure DevOps and things. I know you're not here to just talk solely about Circle CI, but just for a moment, what would you say are like top three things you would want people to try Circle CI out over Azure DevOps? And why do you think you'd, you'd shine in comparison? Because a lot of these guys, a lot of the folks listening, they'll come from shops that that's just sort of the natural default, right? Because they're, they're a Microsoft shop. And so if they're thinking about tools to use, they may not have heard of Circle CI or they may not have used it in the past. And um, what would be your pitch to them in terms of sort of a couple of things you think you guys really differentiate on versus what Microsoft's doing? Yeah, so the place that I would start that I think is, I don't know if it's obvious, I, I, it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about, is there's kind of two approaches that I see in this overall space of, of developer tools, right? There are companies that are trying to string together all of the pieces end-to-end, right? Where it will be your sort of one-stop shop. You'll get all the pieces that you need from code repository to CI, CD to, you know, deployment tools or, or whatever. And the objective, I think, of a lot of those organizations or the, the perspective of a lot of those organizations, and I think Microsoft's pretty renowned for putting together suites, so I would, I would put them, Microsoft, in that bucket, is that the value is in the simplicity of not integrating systems. Right. Whereas the perspective that we have is that CI/CD is a deep enough part of what you do and a complex enough part of what you do that investing in a tool that's designed specifically around that versus at the highest level, I would say, when I'm trying to build a you know kind of end-to-end automation tool, CI/CD is like you could run a script right here if you want, which is pretty different in my experience from what teams with any sophistication are actually trying to achieve in CI/CD, right? So we're very focused on doing that well and then integrating effectively and easily on either side, right? So 
either side being where we're getting source from and then how we're pushing it out into, into deployment environments. And so the things that I think about are, for example, your ability to debug within a build, right? So let's take, when I say build, I'm usually referring to a workflow, which is mm-hmm. effectively a, a DAG, right? It's a graph of all the dependencies and the things that you want to execute until one of them fails and then whether or not it's important that that thing fails, et cetera. Should be important that it fails, by the way. Don't ignore your warnings. <laughs> <laughs> and so being able to really model that in a way that gets you both a you know, clear understanding, performance, honestly, like build time is a very, very important thing for, for any large team, even small teams, but as your code base gets larger, you know, build time becomes the thing that suffers. And when you spend your time you know, having sword fights on office chairs instead of actually, you know, moving on to the next thing, that's really important. So your ability to optimize and then debugging. I mean, we talked earlier about like SSHing or connecting into a container to diagnose what's going wrong in that environment. Like, or we will take your JUnit formatted output and present the specific cases at the top, like where your errors are instead of digging through logs with, I want to say, Apple F, but I'm probably on the wrong show for that. So, uh, but, <laughs> browsing your, you know, browsing your page, trying to find the error and figure out which test failed, so that you can go start debugging, printed right? Like debugging, right? That's what's the, that? Printed, yeah, ex- exactly. Debugging. Like yeah. actually putting in tools, and then boy, we also take that to tie those things together. We take that JUnit formatted output, which pretty much every test runner can produce and use historical timings to rebalance where your tests are being executed to basically reduce the total time of execution, right? So like we think about CI and CD all day, every day. And I think a lot of the other things that are, a lot of the other offerings that are out there are, as I said, we can give you an empty environment and you can install whatever you want and run a script. And if the script passes, like congratulations, your build passes, but don't actually (laughs) think about like the, the real, I mean, the fact that I'm getting laughs, I think, means people have felt that pain, right? You've oh, been sure. there and tried to get an effective build process, and it kind of sucks. And mm. we're here to make it not suck. Perfect. That's what I would yeah. say. It's very much like uh, when I, I did a session at a conference recently about this, and someone's like, why should I even care about this? It seems like a lot of work to get this set up. I was like, have you ever set up testing on a project? And they're like, yes. I was like, all right, what is the, what is the best part about doing that? Like well, because I I get a sense of confidence in what I've what I've built, and I know that no project am I working on nonstop, month after month after month. I work on it for a little bit, then I move on to something else, then I have to come back to it a little bit later, and I forget about what it was doing and stuff, and I have this fear of making a change and da da da. I'm like, okay, yeah. So you get all that, you get the benefit of having tests. What is the worst part about doing it? They're like, oh my god, setting it up. I'm like, yeah, but once you get past that, you see that it was worth the investment of actually getting everything set up. And they're like, yeah, said. So that's what CI and CD is like. Once you actually get everything set up, once you take the time to get things set up the way that you want them set up on a project, which, yes, I mean, the goal is to make that process as, as quick as possible and to get through it as quickly as you can. But make sure you take the time in doing it, make sure it's set up the right way. Because what that does is it really, it speeds up everything else along the way as you keep moving with it. It's, it's, it's exact same, to me, it's a lot like testing and I know you know testing fits into this whole thing as well, but it's a lot like testing where if you can just if you can get past that first entry point and get over that that quick plateau or that that steep hurdle, then you get to this nice plateau of where you can just be productive for a long time and it's that that is the hard part of trying to get people to 
or I guess that's the hardest part of it that I see. And the, the easier you can make that, the better it is for people. Yeah, that's a really good summary. And we talk about why people buy CI and CD or why people use CI and CD. They don't have to buy it, but they buy it from us. Mm. And it's really about that confidence, right? The confidence that that I need in order to just do my job and hopefully to do it well and to move quickly. And then what am I looking for when I'm evaluating an option? I'm looking for basically the option that's going to allow me to get that done as quickly as possible, right? To get set up and going as quickly as possible, to get my results as quickly as possible, to debug my problems as quickly as possible, because that's not, I mean, as a developer, it's the core of what I do, but eliminating all that overhead allows me to focus my time and energy on the core of what my business does, which, you know, is, is something other than building CI and CD, except for us, but like something other <laughs> than that, right? Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything, before we wrap up here, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Any kind of a call to action or anything like that you would like for them to, to take a look at uh, in terms of like, you know, CircleCI, the Windows side of, of CircleCI? Yeah, well, I, I mean, as you mentioned, we launched this in August. We're really excited about it. So I, given that you have a, a pretty Windows-oriented offering, try it out. Give us your feedback. I mean, we're always listening. We would love to hear what we can do to make that even better for, for this community. Awesome. For those of us familiar with ShareGate, we know that they've always been about SharePoint and Office 365 migration. But now that we've all moved to the cloud, like me, you're probably thinking, how about how to scale your Office 365 to a full self-serve environment without worrying about thousands of groups and teams popping up out of nowhere, AKA sprawl. That's why the folks at ShareGate developed ShareGate Apricot. It's a solution that helps us automate our Office 365 group's governance by allowing us to collaborate with users to keep everyone accountable for the things they create. Their super simple to use in-app experience lets us lighten our load by delegating group management responsibilities to users we trust, AKA no more sprawl. Want to get your hands on ShareGate Apricot? Try it for free for 30 days at sharegate.com slash show. ACS Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. CJ's Hyperfish automates the collection of user profile information from users in organizational directories, such as Office 365, SharePoint, Active Directory, and HR systems. The secure service supports on-premises, hybrid, and online environments. Bring your directory to life at hyperfish.com. So Rob, we do this special little segment at the end of each one of our shows and we call it picks. And the idea here is that we like to pick something that is, you know, what is, it could be related to what we talked about today. It could be something that is completely unrelated, that is entirely random and has absolutely nothing to do with tech and just something interesting to you. I guess the only thing we really kind of narrow it down to is we just want to be able to have a link that we can share with our listeners that they can go back and take a look at something before here. So I guess to put you on the spot, is there something, do you have a pick for us today that for our listeners that they may, uh, that, that you'd like to share with them? Sure. I'll describe how this relates a little bit to what we've talked about, but mostly is just things that I like. So I play the guitar and I'm also pretty into tech and like pulling things apart and kind of the engineering view of, of the world. And so I've recently become obsessed with this. I don't know if you call them a YouTube star, this YouTube phenomenon, this guy named Rick Beato. And basically he's, I think he's like every kind of musician. It's hard to tell, but he does amazing things like what makes this song great, where he will take apart a song track by track. And I don't know if he has the originals. No one can figure out actually how it works, but will break down 
you know, here's the hook, here's how the bass line ties in, you know, this is what the drummer is doing right here that sort of makes this really cool. The other thing that he's done a lot recently, which I find really interesting, is song comparisons when there's these lawsuits, you know, like oh, yeah. someone wrote an original song or wrote a song, you know, maybe it's an estate is now suing someone else who's just put out a song and breaks down and compares how they're structured. And in some cases says, basically, this is the same song. That's like cool to see, I guess. And in others, here are 37 examples of prior art of how this song was done previously. And ultimately, there's only so many chord changes you can have, that sort of thing. So if you like music and you like engineering, I guess, or just like tearing things apart, I would recommend Rick Beato. I think he's awesome. That's awesome. I was worried there for a moment. I thought you were going to literally take picks, literally. And... uh, (laughs) And shows like a bunch of guitar picks. <laughs> I do have a bunch, but I, I would have no idea how to link to them. No, fair enough. <laughs> nice. I, I, awesome. I think I may have seen one of his videos about a court case recently. I can't remember what it was now, but it does ring a bell. And I remember a guy very scientifically going through the whole thing and breaking it down. Could have been the same guy. I'm not 100% sure, but it was fascinating. Awesome. That's a good pick. I think I just found him. So I'll make sure I include, our, uh, include his, his channel on, on our show notes. CJ, do you have one for us today? I do. We've had the artistic pick already from Rob here, but I'm going to go nerdy. If you grew up in the in the world of computing like over a decade ago, you remember Microsoft Flight Simulator, right? Which was like, which to this day has this crazy number of people in that ecosystem that still to this day swear by it. And there's this massive community just around Flight Sim today. But Microsoft are getting kind of retro and... Um, I saw an article this week. It was a closed preview or pre-alpha, pre-alpha beta, pre-alpha of Flight Simulator 2020 that a bunch of aviation enthusiasts have had a crack at looking at. And um, you look at what used to happen in flight sims and you look what's happened 10 years later and it is just absolute night and day. And you forget about how far graphics have come in computing when you see this thing. Because you look at it side by side and you're like, oh my goodness, we were literally playing Minecraft in the past and now we're, now we're flying through reality. But anyway, it's um, Flatsum 2020. There's a preview video of it out and they just taken all of the goodness that we've had with satellite imagery in the last decade and mashed it up with all the goodness that we've had with the evolution and graphics cards over the last 20 years or so. And it's just breathtaking. It's incredible. It makes me want to take over my garage, kick our cars out, and build a massive sim pit. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that. I was there. be stoked. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that. I just got the, the latest, uh, was it Mario Kart for my iPhone? And my son's going crazy about it. And he's like, yeah, these games are, this game is incredible here. It's so much fun. And I just sat there and looked at him. I'm like, you, you realize that, I mean, he's like, we were just playing Minecraft the other day. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I was playing Ultima, you know, way, way back. And it was, <laughs> Minecraft just kind of looks like we were frozen in time for a while, but. Yeah, when games um, used to have to get by on uh, on on engagement and, and fun playing the game as opposed to how fancy it looks, right? There you go, yeah. And I measured it in how, how tall the three and a half inch floppies were. Exactly. How about you? What do you got for us this week, AC? So mine is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of uh, boomerang around and I'm going to come back to being somewhat on topic for what we've been talking about today. This whole conversation reminded me of a book that I read last year and absolutely loved it. It's written like a novel, but it really kind of walks through the process of a, of a company that doesn't have like a CI and CD process, doesn't have like a DevOps kind of process. And they're 
lessons learned on trying to figure out their way, finding the right ways to do it, seeing, meeting the resistance and stuff in your organization. I had another pick I was going to do, but I thought it'd pay, take too long to explain it. This book, uh, it's a book called The Phoenix Project. Absolutely loved it because it, it helped. I, when I shared this with some people last time we talked about this, they found it to be really useful for their organization because they really didn't know where to start. And it was like, I buy it. I buy this whole concept, but I don't know how to get it going inside my organization. I was like, this is a, it's a fictitious story, but it, it's a pretty good probably representation of what I see happen in a lot of different organizations. So that's yeah, my yeah. pick this week is The Phoenix Project. A lot of us have lived that, right? And sympathize with it. I've read that book too. And man, it just makes you cringe at times about how real it is. <laughs> it's a classic. There's also, if you didn't know, there's a sequel really? that just came out called The Unicorn Project, which I have not read yet. That sounds pretty good, actually. But uh, you, should, you should add that, I guess, to your list. Straight to Audible for me. Yeah, that is definitely, I'm just, oh yeah, there it is. That's going to be going straight. Yeah, it's going straight to my audible. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you bet. It's right next to the uh, unicorn coloring book for ages four to eight on Amazon. I'm not sure if I'm going <laughs> to pick the right one on this one. <laughs> coloring books on audible sounds much more challenging. I don't know how that's going to work out for you. <laughs> <laughs> one for me, one for my daughter. We'll be good. There. Awesome. Hey, Rob, thanks a lot for taking the time to sit down with us today and talk about CI and CD and Circle CI and your new Windows support. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you joining the show. And um, I think it'll be really useful for our listeners today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a ton of fun to, uh, to chat about all those things and more. Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in iTunes. Word of mouth recommendations are the most effective ways for us to grow the show. And we'd really appreciate it. If you have a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as a wave or an MP3 and provide a link so that we can play your question on the show. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and the Google Play Store by searching for the Microsoft Cloud Show or via RSS at microsoftcloudshow.com, where you'll also find notes of each episode. You can also find us on Facebook, searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or on Twitter at MS Cloud Show. And finally, sign up to our mailing list by heading over to our website and entering your email to interact with us, participate in upcoming interviews and other cool stuff. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.